we could, let's uh, turn to Romans chapter 8. For those of you who are tuning in online, welcome. Uh, glad you're here with us. Uh, let me encourage you to take your Bible as well as we look at the book of Romans once again and this fabulous, fabulous chapter in the book of Romans. Before we get into it this morning, uh, let me just share a story with you. This comes from Russell Moore, and he, he talks about a time in his life when he was just a lowly pastor, pastoring a church. And while he was pastoring this church, his son was in a Sunday school class. And a, and a well-meaning children's ministry leader, God bless our children's ministry leaders, by the way, a well-meaning leader uh, in the Sunday school class asked the kids to, to sing their favorite songs. I don't know, it's kind of an icebreaker or something like that. So uh, Russell Moore's son, keep in mind, this is the pastor's son, by the way. He said to his teacher, I've got one. This is one of my daddy's favorite songs. We sing it all the time at home together. So the, the teacher said, okay, well, sing it for us. We want to hear it. So this little boy, he stood up and in his best country singing voice, he sang, Johnny Cash, I fell into a burning ring of fire. And of course, I mean, the teacher, as he's doing this, is mortified. And, well, you know, if you know anything about that song, you know, it's not the most wholesome song to be singing at church. You know, it's not the worst song in the world, but... It's not the best either. Here's, here's the reason why. See, that song was written. It wasn't written by Johnny Cash. It was written by June Carter. And Carter wrote that song about her sinful, adulterous desires for Johnny Cash. Her attraction to him was like a burning ring of fire. There was this passionate desire for sin. But it burns, burns, burns. It, it's a sin that is attractive at first, but the fiery consequences are very real with that desire. Sin is enticing, and it's desirable, but it has grave consequences. Actually, that, that might be a good song to sing at church. I don't know. The more I talk about it, the more I think, maybe we should sing that song. It burns, 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 this desire for sin, and as we pursue it, here's the thing about sin, you know, let, sin... It promises freedom and delightfulness and satisfaction. And, and, and in a sense, it delivers that initially. But in the end, sin doesn't lead to freedom. It leads to bondage. It doesn't lead to satisfaction. It leads to despair. It burns, burns, burns. That's the picture that even Paul paints at the end of Romans 7. He wants to do the right thing. He longs to do the right thing. But his flesh keeps sabotaging him, and he, he can't follow through with it. Who shall save me from this body of sin and death? He cries out at the end of Romans 7. Now, we're not going back to Romans 7, okay? We did that already. We're moving on today to Romans 8, and Romans 8 is different. Romans 8, Romans 7 was about bondage to sin, the cycle of sin. Romans 8 is not about bondage to sin and the flesh. Romans 8 is about freedom, if Romans 8 was a scene from a movie, it would be Braveheart. 
It would be William Wallace screaming, freedom! That's Romans 8. They can take our lives, but they will never take our freedom. That's Romans 8. Romans 8 is our declaration of independence. And it's not a freedom that's made possible by by our striving or by our willpower. It's a freedom that's made possible in Christ. In Christ. It's a freedom that's made possible through the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God that lives inside of us. So let's talk about freedom this morning, Harvest Decatur. Y'all ready for this? Are you now? Let's talk freedom. I'll give you four statements about freedom from Romans 8, 1 through 11. Here's the first one. In Christ. And by the way, everything that I say today, all of my points start with in Christ. No Christ, no freedom. In Christ, number one, we have freedom from condemnation. We have freedom from condemnation. Paul says in verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I heard a pastor say this last week, that this is the greatest sentence in the greatest chapter, in the greatest letter, in the greatest book, the Bible, ever written. Romans 8, 1, right here. The greatest sentence in the greatest uh, chapter in the greatest letter, Romans in the greatest book ever written. I don't know about that. There's a lot of good stuff in the Bible. But I agree, this is, a, this is an extraordinary and climactic verse in the book of Romans. Memorize this verse, Harvest Decatur, and have it on your lips often. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Can we say that together? Let's just say that together. It's up here on the screen, all right? Let's say it. If you're watching right now, say it with us. Here we go. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's do it again. Let's raise the volume level. Can we do that now? Here we go. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That Greek word for condemnation there is this word, katakrima. It's a word that's only used three times in the New Testament, and all are in the book of Romans. Condemnation, katakrima, is the opposite of justification. Condemnation is the opposite of justification. Paul said in Romans 5, Therefore, as one trespass, Adam's sin in the garden, led to condemnation, katakrima, also one man's act of righteousness, Jesus' death on the cross, leads to justification and life for all men. In Adam, we are condemned. In Christ Jesus, we are justified. We are saved, and there is no condemnation for us if we are in Christ Jesus. Which, which we've got to ask the question, are you in Christ Jesus? Are you now? In Christ, no condemnation, you're justified. No Christ, no justification, you're condemned. It's that simple, the picture that's being painted here. Pastor Rankin Wilbur, he said this once. I love this quote. You can read this on the screen. It says, God doesn't love you to the, to the degree that you are like Christ. Phew, thank goodness, because I'm often not like Christ. God doesn't love you to the degree that you are like Christ. He loves you to the degree that you are in Christ. And if you have faith in Christ, that's 100%. There's an old hymn that goes like this. Some of you might be familiar with this. It goes like this. 
Long may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and a thousand more. Jehovah knoweth none. Why is that the case? Because when God the Father looks on us, he doesn't see sin. He doesn't say, see, oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? When God looks at us, those who are in Christ, he sees his own son. He sees the righteousness that's been imputed to us by Jesus Christ, our Savior. So we can say with confidence, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Some of you might say, well, how can you be so confident, Pastor Tony? How can you be so sure? Why are you so confident that we're not condemned? Here's why. Look at verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has liberated you, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. There's your William Wallace moment right there. There's your opportunity to shout, Freedom! Right there. We have been set free from the law of sin and death because of this law of the spirit of life. What is Paul talking about there? What does that mean, the law of the spirit of life? Well, I'll be honest with you. Paul's having a little bit of fun here with his word law. If you remember in Romans 7, the refrain all throughout Romans 7, the the key term that Paul talks about again and again and again is law, 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 law. Law this, law that, law this. And what he tells us, essentially, is that the law is good, but the law is not best. The law points out our sin, but the law can't save us from sin. It falls short of saving us from our sin. So now in verse 2, Paul is using that word law again, but he's not talking about the Mosaic law like he was talking about in Romans 7. He's talking instead about a new law, the law of the spirit of life. And this spiritual life has freed us from the law of sin and death which is exactly what the Mosaic law in Romans 7 couldn't do. Now, what is this law of the spirit of life? What is that? Here it is. It's the impartation in us of the Holy Spirit as a result of the faith that you have in Christ. You have faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes inside of of you. Your faith in Christ is the basis for your life, and it's the basis for the Holy Spirit living inside of you. If you have faith in Christ, you have the Spirit inside of you. If you don't have faith in Christ, you don't have the Spirit inside of you. It's that simple. And and as the Holy Spirit comes inside of you, it starts to change you and move you and transform you and produce stuff in you that you couldn't produce on your own. And now you can live a life with power and with freedom and with victory over the law of sin and death. Now you're not striving in your own flesh. You're striving by the power of the Holy Spirit inside of you. And obedience to the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit leads you is liberating. It gives freedom like nothing in this world can give freedom. Let me say it this way. Let me, cha- let me change June Carter's image of that ring of fire. The Holy Spirit is a ring of fire that burns inside of you. But it burns with a passion for God's holiness and for Christ's likeness, not temporary delight in sinfulness. And that Holy Spirit is prompting you and leading you to experience freedom like nothing you've experienced before. 
So first of all, in Christ Jesus, we have freedom. We have freedom from condemnation. Amen. Everybody with me? You guys sleepy? Did you shoot too many fireworks yesterday? Come on now. Somebody was shooting fireworks at my house at like midnight last night. Come on now. I got church in the morning. Number two, here we go. Here's the second freedom. We got freedom from condemnation. We've got another freedom. We've got freedom from regulation. We've got freedom from legalism. If you want to use that term here instead of regulation, what do you mean by that, Pastor Tony? What do you mean by freedom from regulation? Well, look with me at verse 3. Here's what Paul says. Paul says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. The law told me to do something. But brother donkey inside of me said, "Uh uh-uh, I ain't doing that. The, the, The flesh inside of me couldn't get it done. Paul continues here, by sending his own son. This is verse three. Follow along with me. This is this is really important. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Oh, my goodness, there's so much in there I want to talk about. But I got to pace myself, okay? There's a lot here. Let's, let's, take, let's take this apart. Look at verse 3, first of all. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. God the Father, everybody listening? This is really important. God the Father sent his own son into this world. This is what we call the incarnation In flesh, carna, carne, that's the Latin word for flesh. Jesus Christ came in flesh. He had flesh. Like you and I have corporeal flesh on our bodies. But Paul says he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Meaning, yes, he was flesh like we are flesh, but he wasn't sinful like we are sinful. He didn't have original sin inside of him like we have original sin inside of us. He didn't have a brother donkey inside of him like we have brother donkey inside of us. So he was like us, but he was different from us. The likeness of human flesh. Everybody got that? Stay with me. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, Paul says. He condemned sin in the flesh. God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. What does that mean that God the Father sent his son for sin? What does that mean? Well, it means that Jesus became a sin sacrifice for us. Remember 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21? It's a good parallel passage right here. You can read this on the screen. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We sing that Chris Tomlin song, Jesus Messiah, here, don't we? From time to time. He became sin who knew no sin, that we may become the righteousness of God, that we may become his righteousness. That's what Paul's talking about here. Jesus became sin for us so that we might be declared righteous in God's sight. This is what we call the doctrine of justification. This is what Paul's been clamoring about for the last seven chapters, that that Jesus has done this for us. Here's a question for you, just kind of an existential question, really. Why would Jesus do that? 
Why would he become sin for us? And and let me ask it even more broadly than that. Why would God the Father, who loves his Son, why would he send his Son into our world to become a sin offering for us? Why would God humiliate himself like that? I'll tell you why. It's because he loves us. And because there was no other way to remove the sin that's inside of you, that's inside of me, than for Jesus to become a blood sacrifice as payment for our sin. That's why he did it, because he loves us. And we needed the help. We weren't getting the job done on our own. We can't fulfill the law on our own. So look at verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now watch this. Watch what Paul does at the end of verse 4. Who walk now? Those of us who are saved by Jesus, have this righteousness that he's given us, we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now this is where the law kind of comes in by the back door here at the end of verse 4. This is God allowing us to fulfill his commands not by the flesh. We couldn't get that done on the other side of salvation. But now that we're saved, now that we're full of the Holy Spirit, we have the ability to fulfill God's commands in ways we couldn't without the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit comes inside of us, and now we're not walking by our flesh. We We don't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps trying to get the job done. We walk in the Spirit. We don't fight sin in our own power because that doesn't work. We fight sin and we obey the law with the power that God has deposited in us by the Holy Spirit. Everybody with me? Here's how Alva McLean says it. You can read this on the screen. He says, There are people who say that when we are Christians, God gives us the power over sin. He does not. God does not give the Christian power to overcome sin. If he did, you would surely be self-righteous, proud, and self-sufficient. God comes into you and overcomes sin as you yield to him, the Holy Spirit inside of you. The moment you do not yield to him, you are in the muck and you are in the mire. Why does he do it that way? Why does God do it that way? He does it that way to make us cling to him in trust, second by second, moment by moment, hour by hour. This is so that our praise and our boasting will not be about ourselves, but about our Lord. That is so insightful right there. I know maybe some of this is a bit uh, philosophical here, so let's just let's get down to brass tacks here. Let's, let's talk specifics in your life. I'll give you an illustration here. Um, let's assume this upcoming week that you're tempted to sin. You covet the gorgeous car of your neighbor. And you're still driving that Honda Accord that you drove in college. And it's got like 200,000 miles. And that guy, he's not even as smart as you, and he's driving a better car than you are. And you you sin, and you covet, and you envy, and you're discontent. 
you failed, you sinned. But the Holy Spirit doesn't condemn you in that sin. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit doesn't condemn. But what the Holy Spirit does do is convict and prompts you to repent and to pray. And so you start to speak to the Lord and you say, Lord, thank you for the 200,000 miles I got on my Honda Accord. I don't deserve a Honda Accord. I deserve a Yugo. That's what I deserve. And thank you that you blessed my neighbor. Help me to be a good example of Christ Jesus to him. I don't deserve anything. And you have given me grace, which is above anything. If I have that, I have everything I need, even if I don't have anything else. You've given me grace. You've given me salvation. Produce joy in my heart, Holy Spirit. Please, joy with where I am in life. Is this practical enough for you? Is this a little too practical? You're like, wow, how did he know that I was doing that this last week? But here's the thing. Then the next day, you sin again. You envy again. This time it's not your neighbor's house or car. It's his house or maybe it's his dental coverage. And again, the Holy Spirit brings that conviction. And you repent and you turn from it and you pray. And over time, I tell you this, you know, there is a freedom that starts to develop as you distance yourself from this, as the Holy Spirit convicts and restores and grows you. And unlike Romans 7, you know, as we're talking about Romans 7, it's like a spiral downward, down, down, down. We sin, we sin, we sin, and it's a cycle we can't get out of. Romans 8 instead is a cycle upward. We're starting to see victory. We're starting to see the Holy Spirit bring conviction. And, and even better than being convicted about our sin and repenting from it is that, that we don't sin in the first place. And, and we're content with where God has us and what we're doing. That's the goal of Romans 8. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to do inside of you. And I tell you, it is good to confess your sin. That's why we have small groups, by the way. We get together, we confess our sin, we keep each other accountable. We leverage the Holy Spirit that's inside of each other. And that is good. It is good to confess. It's restorative for us as Christians. But even better than sinning and repenting, is listening to the Holy Spirit's voice in the first place and not sinning. And that's what we're working towards. And that's where the real freedom is found. Paul says later in Romans chapter 13, he says, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So start to think over time, you know, get yourself prepared before you go home. Lord, when I see my neighbor's car, Give me the power over the envy that I have in my heart. And you don't sin in the first place in the midst of that temptation. Right? That's good. That's, you're growing, Christian. That's spiritual growth. That's maturity. You're making no provision for your flesh. I heard Tommy Nelson say this last week, that he, do, he doesn't play pickup basketball with unbelievers anymore. That's because when he would do that, he would always blow his witness playing with them. Because he'd lose his temper. So he's just like, I, I don't play anymore. It's, I make no provision for, his, for my flesh. And then he said, I, I'm about to start giving up driving because I can't even drive. But I'll tell you what, that's, that's where real liberation, real freedom is found. If you can listen to the Holy Spirit, if you can obey the Holy Spirit, sometimes freedom in Christ means making no provision for the flesh. You don't give brother donkey a chance to bow up on you. So here's another freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. This is number three. We also have freedom from subjugation. 
freedom from subjugation. Paul says in verse 5, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. This is that spirit of prayer that I mentioned earlier. Help me, Lord. Guide me, Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit convicts you, you say, I'm sorry, Lord, I repent. Give me victory. When the Holy Spirit prompts you to say something, you say, sir, yes, sir. Whatever you want me to do, Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit says, don't do that, you'll regret that, you say, thank you, Jesus, for giving me your Holy Spirit and protecting me from that thing. Thank you for putting your Holy Spirit inside of me to guide me and direct my life. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. To set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Do you want peace? Do you now? You find peace not in just doing what makes you feel good at the time. That is a lie. That is the worst lie that was perpetuated on a a whole host of young people in the 1960s. If it feels good, do it. A whole generation of hippies. If it feels good, do it. Just do what makes you happy. You know what we got out of that? We got young people strung out on drugs, miserable, antisocial, anti-family, anti-authority. Talk about a ring of fire that burns. That didn't lead anywhere good. And what's sad in our day is that still gets perpetual. Just, you know, if it feels good, do it. it. feels good. Is that freedom? That is not freedom. That is bondage. You know, you can see the way in which words are twisted in our day when words like love, this great biblical word, and words like freedom have been warped by society to mean something that they don't mean and don't lead to freedom and don't lead to love. You know, when people say love in our day, just, just talking about society at large, what they really mean is mushy, hormonal sentimentality. I love somebody. That's what, I, that's what they mean by it. And when people say freedom, what they really mean is anarchy, not freedom. And their anarchy leads to bondage, not freedom. I think the best illustration of this in literary form, you remember in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's that moment where the, 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 the witch, the white witch, is tempting Edmund. Y'all remember this? And she gives him some candy. Y'all remember what that candy is? Turkish delight, right? No kid ever wants to eat that anymore. Just kidding. No, it's good. It's good. It's good. But she gives him this Turkish delight. And, you know, at first, Edmund was euphoric, right? It felt great. But then this thing starts to enslave him, and he wants more of it. And he doesn't even realize that he's going to eat so much of it that it will eventually destroy him. And this is this... This, this candy is what the witch uses to, as leverage over him to tempt him and to control him. Is that freedom? Is that freedom? That's not freedom. That's bondage. It's a bondage that leads to death. Paul says, verse 6, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. There's no freedom. There's no peace and hostility towards God. 
for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. To that, some of you might say, well, that's, that's disconcerting, Pastor Tony. Verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Because sometimes I'm in the flesh. Just ask my spouse. Just ask my kids. Sometimes my flesh gets the best of me. If those who are in the flesh can't please God, then what, what hope do I have? What chance do I have? Well, keep reading. Look at verse 9. Paul says this. And this is really important. This is, this is the reality of your Christian life, okay? Yeah, you might struggle with the flesh, but you're not in the flesh, okay? You are in Christ Jesus. That is your reality. Paul says, you, you, however, are not in the flesh. Who's the you there? Who's the you in verse 9? Do you know? By the way, that you is emphatic in Greek. And in Greek, you actually differentiate between the you plural and the you singular. So we don't do that in modern English. So if I was talking to one of you, I'd say you're in the flesh. If I was talking to all of you, I'd say you're in the flesh or you are not in the flesh. I'd use the same word. But in Greek, that's actually a different word. We used to have in old English a great word for plural you. You know what it was? Ye. Ye. So if you have a King James Bible, which maybe some of you do, and you look this up, it says, but ye, ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Who's the ye in verse 9? Who's the you? What? Y'all. <laughs> it's the y'all, yes. Who's the y'all? Ye sounds better. I don't know. It depends. Look, here's, here's the you. Here's the plural you here. Paul's talking to believers in Rome, and he's telling them, you have come to Christ Jesus. You are in Christ Jesus. You are not in the flesh. You might struggle with it. You might wrestle against it. You might need to not make provision for it. But, but in terms of ontological reality, you are not in the flesh. You are in Jesus Christ. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. In fact, the Spirit is in you. If, in fact, Paul says, verse 9, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Here's a fourth freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, and this is really important. In Christ, we have freedom from separation. We will not be separated from God, even in the midst of our struggle with sin. Paul says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him, meaning to Christ. In other words, if you belong to Christ, you will have the Spirit of Christ inside of you. The Spirit of Christ is the, the Spirit of God is the Holy Spirit. Okay, so don't, don't think that we're talking about something different here. The Spirit of Christ is the Holy Spirit. And I think Paul calls it the Spirit of Christ here because he's trying to link this reality. If you're in Christ, if you have faith in Christ and the Holy Spirit is in you, the Spirit of Christ is inside of you. If you're not in Christ, then the Holy Spirit is not inside of you. Okay? Everybody got that? And, and let me be clear about this too. This is something that I think we need to clarify just in terms of theology. 
the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes inside of you, when you get saved, it's not like your in-laws coming to stay for the weekend, okay? It's not like the coming and going and, oh, I lost the Holy Spirit. Oh, he's back. Oh, he's gone. No, he's back. That is not how it works. The Holy Spirit is, I mean, this sounds negative, but I'm trying to make it positive. He's a squatter, okay? He comes in and he takes over and he's not leaving. Now, listen, now, can you quench the Holy Spirit? Yes, you can. Can you, um, you know, Paul talks later about grieving the Holy Spirit. And can you grieve the Holy Spirit by ignoring him or by not listening to him? Yes, you can grieve the Holy Spirit. But if you have faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is not going anywhere. He is inside of you. And Paul makes that clear. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Christ. Let's keep reading here. Look at verse 10. But if Christ is in you, and that's by his Holy Spirit, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Your body is dead because of sin. It will die. It will age and it will die. It doesn't matter how many creams you put on your body. It doesn't matter how many surgeries you have. It doesn't matter how much medicine you take. Your, your bodies are going to age and they're going to die. And that's because there is sin inside of them. And, and, and there's a good reality that's coming in the future. You're going to be resurrected with a new body. So you, you don't want this body forever. I don't want to live in this body forever, do you? I mean, I was, I was joking the other day at uh, Dave and Becky's wedding. I was joking with Dave Wingard and Tom Allworth about getting old, you know. And, and Dave was rebuking me. He's like, Tony, you're not that old. Quit talking like that. You're 41 years old. You know, just relax. And I, you know, I told him, okay, yeah, okay, I'm not that old, but I feel old. I f- and, and part of it is like this memory that I have of being young. And how I used to run. And I, I used to run like a gazelle. Now I run like a possum, you know. I used to jump like, like a frog. I used to dunk a basketball. I told him that. And, and now, you know, I can barely get off the ground. Alistair tells me this all the time. Dad, you're not that old. You're not that old. I feel old because I remember being young. And, you know, part of it, too, the reason I talk about it, the reason I try to pace myself in life is because I don't want to be like one of those old guys who's always trying to do young things like he used to. I don't want to be an episode of Duck Dynasty, you know. I want to grow old gracefully. So, yes, my body, because of sin, is expiring. I might get another 40 years out of this body, maybe, but it's headed for death because of sin. But the spirit inside of me, everybody listening? The spirit inside of me is alive, and it is kicking, and it's getting stronger, and it's taking over my body. And what Paul's saying here in verse 10, verse 11, is that the Holy Spirit inside of me is going to take me right on into eternity. Just like it raised Jesus Christ from the dead, it's going to raise me from the dead. So, you know, yes, I used to be young. Yes, I used to dunk a basketball. Put that on my gravestone. Here lies a man who dunked a basketball. 
But even better than that, I want to hear, I want to see, I want to live out a man who is full of the Holy Spirit, who people looked and saw, this man has been transformed over time by the Holy Spirit that lived inside of him, that did something that his flesh couldn't do as it was wearing out. That's better. The Spirit is better than the flesh. The Spirit is better than the body that we have. The Spirit's going to lead us right into eternity. Here's why it's better. Look at verse 11. Here's the great climax of what Paul's saying here. It says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, does that Spirit dwell in you? He, that's the Holy Spirit, not it. This is not Star Wars. It's not a force. He, the Holy Spirit, who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. He will do that. The Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. The Holy Spirit will raise me from the dead. Paul says elsewhere that the Holy Spirit is a deposit assuring your future inheritance. Ephesians 1 verse 14. I'll take that over a young man's body any day that inheritance for the future, that deposit of a future inheritance. inheritance. Here's what verse 11 is saying. Jesus' future is your future. Jesus' resurrection is your resurrection. Jesus' life is your life. Jesus' righteousness is your righteousness. If you are in Christ Jesus, you get all of that and more. And God the Father doesn't see you as sin-stained and a wretch. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of sin and death? God the Father doesn't see you like that. God the Father sees you like he sees his only begotten son. He sees you through the prism of his only begotten son. And after you die, he will raise you from the dead and give life to your mortal body through the spirit that dwells in you. You know, Paul never goes long without talking about eternity in the book of Romans. Have you noticed that? It's like, it's like he gets through like half a chapter of content and he's like, don't forget about eternity. Don't, don't forget it. we're going to be raised from the dead. Don't forget about, you know, the new life that we have in Christ. You know why Paul keeps reiterating that? Because these, these Romans that he's writing to are in a hostile place where they're being persecuted. They're in the belly of the beast. They could die at any moment. They're suffering and they're being persecuted. And Paul says, keep this hope in front of you all the time. All the time. God's got something better for you. He's preparing it for you. The Holy Spirit resides within you. He's going to lead you right into eternity. Just like he raised Jesus from the dead. Is that good, Harvest Decatur? Hallelujah, right? Can we just say hallelujah together? Hallelujah. This is good. This is freedom. I'll close with this. I entitled this message today, trying to be clever here. I entitled this message, Declaration of Dependence. And that's because as Christians, we don't really become independent when we get saved. We actually become dependent. We are thoroughly and completely dependent on Christ for our salvation and also for our sanctification. That's what Romans 7 and 8 is about. Not just our salvation, but our the ongoing work of sanctification and then our glorification. All of that is dependent on... We don't do any of that. It's All of that is dependent on Christ. 
And obviously I'm having a bit of fun with this sermon title because it's, it's 4th of July weekend, right? As Americans, we celebrate our Independence Day, July 4th, 1776, when we threw down the gauntlet and declared our independence from Mother England. And we ratified that decision in that great document called the Declaration of Independence. The greatest document ever written apart from Scripture, in my opinion. That is the seminal and quintessential American document. This is what Americans base their freedom upon. This is where life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is codified and immortalized for the American people. Now, that's freedom from Mother England, okay? Let me flip the script on you here. What does freedom in Christ Jesus look like? Is it different than freedom from Mother England? Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. What does that mean that Jesus sets us free? Well, the birthday of America is Independence Day. But the birthday of a Christian is Dependence Day. Do you get that? The birthday of a Christian is the day that you relinquish self-rule. Fourth of July, it's our Independence Day. That's the time we threw off the yoke of the tyrants and went to a democracy. But don't mistake that for your relationship with God. The Bible says the day you become a Christian, the day you finally become free, it's not your Independence Day, it's your Dependence Day. Why do I say that? Why am I stressing that? Your freedom as a Christian is found in Christ. Every single statement that I made up on that screen, every single statement starts with in Christ. Your freedom from condemnation, in Christ. Your freedom from regulation, in Christ. Your freedom from subjugation, in Christ. Your freedom from separation, in Christ. Those aren't found in self in independence. Those freedoms are purchased for you by Christ Jesus. No Christ, no freedom. No Christ, no salvation. No Christ, no spirit of Christ living inside of you. No Christ, no future resurrection, no eternity. Dependence on Christ, that is where freedom is found, now and forever. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen and amen. Let's close in prayer. just a moment the worship team is going to lead us in a song and it's a song that's focused on the spirit of the living God living inside of us it's a prayer and I want to encourage you to prepare your heart to sing that song right now
if you are in Christ Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is inside of you. Ask Him right now. Pray to Him. And say, Holy Spirit, lead me, guide me. Convict me, prompt me. Show me how to say no to my flesh. To the sinful desires that are inside of my heart. Empower me, strengthen me. Make me more like Jesus. Produce the fruit of the Spirit. Give me joy in my Savior. Joy that is infectious in this world. Where people can look at my life and see see God dwelling inside of me God we are so grateful that we can say with confidence there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus we are not condemned Lord thank you We are saved. We are justified. And God, it's more than that. You're doing work in our lives right now. You're doing work in this church. You're bringing changes into our lives, Lord, that we couldn't do on our own. We give you praise for that. You're freeing us, Lord. Freeing us from sin. Freeing us from our addictions. Freeing us from from those things that enslave us and others in our world, God. And that freedom is intoxicating, God. We want more of it. We want more of you and less of us. More spirit, less flesh. More walking by the Spirit. More obedience to the Holy Spirit. More conversions by the Holy Spirit more people getting saved by the Holy Spirit, more young people, young disciples for Jesus, growing up, committed to Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We want more of that, God. We ask you to do that. Use us for your purposes, we pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your salvation given to us, purchased by your blood. We're here because of you. We're here to worship you. We give you the glory and the praise and the honor for all of that. Thank you for loving us, Lord. Thank you for loving us first. We love you back. 